into a recording. Mark, can I tell you a story? Yes, please. My sister, when I was eight, uh, held up a tape by the band NXS and asked me, did I like them? Of course I said. I love Inkses. She laughed and laughed. Uh, so, so how, how did it feel when that happened? It felt really bad. Uh, not only did I feel like I had failed the test, but I felt like there was no way for me to have even studied for the test. Why, but why was it a test? That is what is curious to me. It what? was definitely a test because she let me know that I had failed it. Um, and by failing, it was proof that I was uncool. Uh, her dumb little brother and couldn't know about or you know be good at anything. Uh, this wasn't actually typical. I don't want to make it sound like I grew up in a terrible household. But this was a moment where I feel like I learned how to do something. What did you learn how to do? I learned how to fake it. <laughs> um, I learned how to pretend to know things that I didn't necessarily know, but could fake my way through um, to avoid the kind of embarrassment and uh, humiliation that my sister wasn't trying to teach me to avoid, was just trying to, you know, uh, was just trying to give me a, a lesson in humility, I think. So you think that she was setting you up in that scenario? Oh, absolutely. She knew that I knew nothing about the band and that I was following her around like a puppy dog, uh, as younger brothers sometimes do, and that I wanted to impress her. And so she gave me a test that she maybe knew I would fail uh, in order to put me in my place and to show me that I had a long way to go. Wow. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. But I have to say... I've definitely experienced similar f things, similar events. Sure. But um, what I think that brings us to is why we're here today. Why are we here, Gabe? We're here today to record a podcast, and that podcast is called Faking It. Uh, I'm Gabe. We've already said that. I'm Mark. And this is Faking It, a show where we check our cultural blind spots, make up for past wrongs, and come to terms with the shameful lies we've told. So let's get into it. What are we doing here? Well, I think that I know that since we've talked about it, I know that we both have these complicated feelings around all the times that we've deceived others, maybe claimed to know something we didn't know, maybe claimed to have read something we hadn't read, maybe claimed to see something we haven't seen. In order to do exactly what you were doing, as a little kid, just to get by, just to like sneak that little bit of, you know, um, we were just trying to to snag what little bit of respect we could from someone else. And then in that moment for you, it backfired. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I was eight, so I didn't really know anything. But for me, this was a lapse and my sister wanted to exploit that lapse. And I think that what we're here to talk about in this podcast is how we sort of form ourselves despite those lapses sometimes and sometimes through them. Um, because I know for myself what the lesson that I learned from my sister that day was not that I should actually be more humble and ask someone who mentions something that I don't know what that thing is. Oh, heavens no. What they can teach me about it and how, how may I come to learn this new thing? Rather, what I learned was 
get better about knowing how you pronounce the band name and you won't be humiliated in front of this person that is your only friend and your hero. So it didn't turn you. <laughs> Maybe into... I was more like six also. I don't remember, but it was, I was young. I just, I just feel like saying that I was eight with no friends sounds now pathetic. But that's not what this podcast is about. Is it? Because it sounds like that might be what this podcast it is about. kind of might be, though, because it did make me feel like I didn't have anything to contribute. And that's also something I think we want to get into is that, like, you know, I mean, let's maybe make this a little more general for a second. I think that everyone does this to some degree. We talk about the weather we know about. We talk about sports sometimes, but we don't really know what, the, what is going on in the sports. We just saw a headline in the newspaper. We talk about politics. We may not be up to date on what the latest is, but we're waiting to have a meeting or we're having chit-chat with somebody that we sort of know and we're trying to fill the air. And we do these things not because we're looking to embellish our own you know, personalities, but because what we're trying to do is connect with other people. Um, now that's something that I think is very human, obviously, and that impulse I think then drives us sometimes to deceive other people about how much we know about stuff. Yeah, it gets a little out of control sometimes, mm -hmm. and sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it. Sometimes you'll walk out of a conversation and you'll go, "I, I don't know that band. Yeah, I've never seen that movie. I've never read that book. I don't know what this person is talking about." But. What you've done in the instance is sort of nod along, maybe even say a couple of talking points that you heard from someone else, maybe even some talking points that you've been kind of hanging on to. Now, it should be said that in this day and age, it's easier than ever to have a couple of talking points about lots of things. But I do think that we'll be revisiting some things that like go a little bit farther back where it might have been a little bit harder to sort of given an example that I would give is that like, you know, take a TV show like Breaking Bad. Well, there's like think pieces and there's recaps and there's people talking about the show all the time. So even if you haven't seen an episode, you kind of know what's going on. You've seen memes, you've seen something about it. Um, what we're talking about is going a little farther back with stuff that we've been avoiding for many, many years um, and how that could end up being something that you just end up avoiding for decades. And not just that. Right? Yeah. yeah. Because no one can see everything. Right. No one can listen to everything. There's just too much shit out there. Right. What I'm interested in, what I think we're both interested in, partially, is why it is that we think that there are some things that you just should know. Yeah. And then the belief that you should know these things leads you to lie about how you should know them. And then lying about how you should know them inevitably leads to this sense of shame about how you've just lied. And like maybe 20% of the time, do you actually go back and and look at the thing that you would lie about? The rest of the time, you just carry that with you, add it to the to the bucket the bucket of shame. And that's really the germ of the idea that we have here, that there are certain significant cultural objects, movies, records, TV shows, books, that we've never really taken the time to see or read or hear. Uh, and the thing we're interested in is not just what these things are like, although we'll get to that, and like what it feels like to experience them many years later, because that's kind of our project. But also the thing we're interested in is the experience of avoidance, of faking, of lying, of shame. Um, so this is really a show about deception self-deception, the deception of others. And I think we're going to get into a lot of stuff about why why, we, why we've why we been lying about things that we have not seen or heard. And why 
and how this becomes a kind of cultural practice that people engage in all of the time. Not one that's necessarily um, malicious or hurtful, right? Right. But something that's just a kind of coin that you use to get by. Well, that's it. I don't think that we're. I don't think that we're uh, particularly special in this respect, and that's sort of why I mentioned the sort of sports or uh, politics stuff that people routinely engage in, kind of having an opinion about something where they may not have even read an article about it, or even, let's say, specifically having an opinion about an article that they definitely haven't read. This is more like that taken to the next level, and I I think that like lots of people do this as well. You know, a movie comes up that that you haven't seen, but that everybody's got an opinion about. And you've got a kind of a thing to say about it that you know won't get you in any trouble, but will keep you cool in the conversation and everyone will think that you're all right and not some weirdo who didn't manage to see Titanic or whatever the thing is. You know that thing where someone asks you if you've read that thing that someone wrote today and you say yes and they start spouting off about it and you're glancing up at them and then also down at your phone to try to read it as they're talking about it so that you can offer your opinion in real time and then by the end of it, you know, quote unquote, what this person's been talking about, but it leaves a little residue of shame behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the, and you mentioned this before, but I do think it's it's worth saying again that it's it, this is sort of also about stuff we're supposed to know. So not every uh, episode will we choose something that you might think you're supposed to know or anyone's supposed to know, but we think we're supposed to know it. Because it has some sort of personal like relevance to our lives. And it's actually kind of amazing that we've managed to avoid it for so long. And that we've managed not only to avoid it, but then also to lie about it for no really good reason. Even other than lies, just survival. Even lies of omission. Right. Well, so, and then some of the alternate titles we came up with for this podcast were Imposter Syndrome, uh, Fill in the Blank, and... Uh, that kind of gives you a sense of like what we're feeling here. I think imposter syndrome is maybe like really on the nose about it. Yeah. Cause it's something that I certainly have felt at many points in my life about many things. And I think that it's also something that once it had a name and people started talking about that as like a thing, people started realizing that they had that about a lot of things. And then it was a source of deep shame to feel like you were faking it through a lots of, parts of your life can i ask you a question Mm -hmm. have you ever felt after doing this a swell of pride i can't say um certainly the getting away with it part is is a is a rush i think um particularly if it gets you gets you something gets you some kind of like uh you know social capital of some sort um i certainly wouldn't say it's like I've faked it well enough, you know, I'm not pathological, I'm not claiming to be, (laughs) that I'm so good at it that I can get, you know, a job out of it or a date out of it or something like that. It's more like, um, it feels like a rush to kind of just get through it and to once, once again, not have to have had done or seen or experienced this thing. So in this week's episode, we're going to tackle something that we both have never really experienced or given the time to, and that is Liz Fair's 1993 album, Exile in Guyville. Um, now, I understand this isn't exactly a Citizen Kane or Abbey Road or something that many people agree is like a giant cultural touchstone, 
Um, but it might as well be for us. I, I think, think so. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had to weasel my way out of conversations about this record a number of times. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had really like the full like list like in recordings of me talking about this record over the years because I'm sure that I must have done it several times a year to some degree. And it might have just been, oh yeah, great album. Or, of course, it's amazing. Or, she's so great. Or whatever. But um, it gets worse because it's not just like random people that I've encountered in the world who are Liz Fair fans. It's that those Liz Fair fans are people that I've dated and in one case, married. <laughs> My wife is a huge fan of this record. We've talked about it. She feels weird uh, that I've actually really never listened to it and was kind of shocked when I told her uh, recently that this was the case. It's possible that I've told these kind of white lies to her on a number of occasions. We've been together for years. She told me that she, you've heard her singing Liz Fair songs from Exile and Guyville at karaoke. Yes, she told me that as well. Uh, and yet... It doesn't really ring a bell. It's just not, it's not, I'm sure that that's true and I've listened and sat there, but in the same way that I've somehow avoided actually just sitting down and listening to this record, which is like, uh, you know, an hour long, just sit there, just do it. It's not a big deal. I've done a lot of just not paid attention. I've done a lot of listing Mm -hmm. where this album is concerned, right? Like listing where, you know, this in lists of important records Right, because it's an it's an important record that right. we should know. Because we're like we're the kind of dudes who listened to a lot of rock music in the '90s, and for whom that music was important. And yet, this also an important rock record from the '90s was not important to us. And why, Gabe? I want to know why. Well, we're gonna find out why. We're gonna talk about it. Uh, it's going to, I think, evince some deep shame because we definitely should have listened to this record and we definitely should not have lied about it for so many years. So we're going to take the next week and we're going to spend it listening to Liz Fair's Exile and Guyville. But you don't have to wait a week because it will be mere seconds before you hear our reactions and admissions. Liz Fair's Exile and Guyville uh, several times, both of us, over the last couple of weeks, formed some thoughts. It's a great record, uh, as you probably already knew. Uh, we didn't because we're uh, dumbasses who have <laughs> skipped out on listening to this classic for many years. Um, and now we're going to talk about our first impressions, um, our first uh, feelings of shame that are uh, both returning and familiar around having missed something great. Uh, and also just sort of like what this what this activated in us. Uh, it certainly activated a lot in me. Yeah, me too. Um, I have a lot of feelings. I have a lot of thoughts. Whatever this experiment is, I think it worked. Maybe it worked. I don't know. Let's talk about it. So uh, first impressions, how did it go? Uh, it went very well. I listened to this record the first time and it was awesome. And I have no idea. Um, I actually have lots of ideas, but I have no idea really why I avoided it. Um, 
in terms of style, in terms of content, it's got everything that I would want from a early mid nineties indie rock record. Uh, I should have been listening to it at that time. And ever since, I think it would have taught me a lot actually. Uh, and we'll get to that a little bit later about sort of like what this album has to offer uh, that uh, particularly I want to talk about why, why I might've been resistant to it over the years, uh, either consciously or probably not. Um, so, um, what did you like about it or what, what did you feel about it? Well, I felt that it was, I felt that it is, I feel that it is a really awesome record. Mm -hmm. It's just a really awesome fucking record. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm saying the most obvious thing you can say about it, but it's new to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I was surprised actually not just that the high points were so high, but that there were so many of them. Mm -hmm. That's an 18 song record which almost no band should ever do including the rolling stones including the rolling stones which we'll talk about in a minute but that so many of these songs are so good yeah most of the songs on this record are really really good songs that would be a high point on any record. Yeah. You mentioned um, when we were sort of pre pre gaming this, that um, there is an aspect to this project that feels a little bit like homework. Like we went and listened to this record. We got it. We were like, Oh, it's like my morning commute. Am I really going to listen to it? Yeah. I should listen to this record again. But on the other hand, I kept, I kept wanting to go back to it. That was something that I really didn't expect. I thought it would be more like homework, more like I listened to it once. And I was like, Oh, of course this is really, this is pretty good, but it doesn't really like, you know, it doesn't really set off any bells in me. But actually, I felt like, and granted, it's also because um, while listening to the record, of course, several of the songs, I was like, oh, I know this song. Yeah. I totally know this song. I don't know why in my head I've, like, blocked out that this is what this is. Probably that's where I got the, like, chutzpah to fake it for so long. It's because I did know some of the songs. And so I did know what it sounded like, you know, not in the entirety of it, but it, sort of in bits and pieces. But what I did find interesting and what made me want to go back was that, like, stylistically, it's it's it, go, it has a huge range. Um, there's, like, a bunch of different types of songs that she nails. And that's what sort of kept me going back, too, was kind of, like, these different moods that the album moves through in 18 tracks. Um, it's compelling. It's, like, it's really, like, it's full, you know? I, I definitely felt the homework aspect of it and i feel like that may just be a part of what this podcast is i mean we're assigning ourselves homework we're assigning ourselves work or listening viewing whatever it turns out to be reading that we wouldn't be doing unless we had sat down in a room and agreed to do it and that we were going to hold ourselves to it and hold each other to it so it's inevitably part of it's going to feel like homework there are definitely times when i maybe didn't feel like listening to it but i was like i'm going to listen to it anyway because i really got to absorb this but i think that for me one of the ways that it sort of penetrated was that i found myself singing these songs a lot Mm -hmm. just while i was walking around the house doing housework whatever they got stuck in my head all the time yeah and that's not necessarily true of everything that i listen to a lot and it's not necessarily um it doesn't necessarily mean anything but i found myself not 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 sad that those songs were stuck in my head 
Um, and yeah, me too. Like, there's there's a, at least a few songs where I was like, I know this song. Yeah, I definitely know this song. I've heard of this song kind of recently. Well, they're great. They're like they're extremely catchy. Most of them extremely catchy pop tunes. She's like really well. She's done a really good job 25 wow. years ago. What an incredible it discovery we've made that this out. is a really great record. Now, okay. I did read in a little bit of my like ancillary research um, that, and this is an interesting thing. I think this is even like the all music guide was probably the first thing that I read, which is like, you know, it's extremely composed. It's extremely poised uh, as a, as a full album. And it's this like sprawling album. Part of that is because she had already recorded all these songs. There's like a demo version of this, of this album <laughs> from a couple years previous or a year previous or something. Uh, now when I say that, it sounds a little bit almost like it's trying to denigrate the ultimate project. It's like, well, she sort of had a practice run and then she liked this. But I don't right, know, like every band. Right, but I don't know. I mean, that, that doesn't go anywhere with me. I think that if anything, that's even more impressive that this person at the beginning of her career had the like additional poise to like do a practice run and then like nail it um, when she went out with it. Um so what uh, what occurred to me was, um, you know, th- this reminded me of all the music that I was listening to at that time, both, you know, in 1993, but also in the years that followed. Um, 1993, I was still a teenager, but um, it's not like records go out of, uh, you know, out of date or something that fast. And certainly this one didn't. It felt very, didn't feel dated in ways that I think some music from the early 90s definitely does to me now and I would never listen to. Um, what it did remind me of, though, was, like, the bands that I was listening to instead of this. So, like, Pavement is probably the most obvious one. Um, but also, like, just thinking about, like, the Lemonheads, like, we talked about this, like, the, you know, Juliana Hatfield is another one, although it's a little more complicated. Uh, and I don't know that I would say I was a fan of hers, but, like, she was in the mix. And so there were all these other bands, but, like, what was different to me about this record and what it really brought up was like, I felt like I wasn't ready for it looking back. Um, And I don't know when I would have been ready for it. I'm certainly ready for it now. It was like a breath of fresh air, but I think it like certainly in 1993, but maybe even in 1998 or maybe even like, you know, 2001, I don't know that I was like capable of accepting this sort of, what makes this record different from those other bands that I mentioned and from a lot of like 90s indie rock, which is I think that it's like very raw and emotional and sort of grown up in being raw and emotional. It's not, it's not, it's arch, but it's not ironic. Uh, and it doesn't have that kind of like distance um, that I think a lot of those bands did. I think part of it also has to do, I mean, I definitely could not have appreciated it when it came out because I was 10 years old sure. in 1993. I was a little older. I was 16, but still just a child, really. Yeah. Um, but also looking back on the music of that period, right, if you think about, you know, the bands that were on, that were hanging around with her or that she was in, that were in Chicago at the same time as she was, right? Mm-hmm. Your Steve Albini's. Sure. Your urge overkills your urge overkills your jesus lizards is mm-hmm. G- jesus is lizard jesus is lizard it's like the yeah it's okay. like the dennis johnson novel right that sounds right mm-hmm. um um they their lyrical approach is completely different yeah and so their way of um expressing those emotions if that's what's happening it often has more to do with um 
you know, kind of abstract or expressionistic lyrics or something. Yeah. And Liz Fair is an incredible lyricist. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the things that was most shocking to me about listening to this is what an accomplished lyricist she is. Just, you know, the wit and precision of her language um, and her way of wrapping words around a melody is pretty, you know, I can't think of anyone at that time doing that kind of music who was doing it that well. Well, that's just it. I mean, I think about a lot of the bands that I listened to at the time. I was a big Britpop fan, so that's like a whole other thing because it's another country. But also they were like real. They wanted all to be pop stars. It's all a pose. It was all sort of like rock and roll was the subject uh, mm-hmm. of the songs as well as <laughs> what, what the songs were. Um, but even, you know, a band like Pavement is all about distance. It's all about a kind of postmodern. We went to college and we're like, we're poets, but we're not going to talk about emotions in a way that is at all kind of direct or, um, emotive. And then the other music that I listened to that was emotive was like super melodramatic or like overly romantic. Um, that would probably be like a lot of shoegaze music. When you listen to the lyrics, they're all like. They sound like emo songs, essentially. But who and but who and then, would ever pay attention to the lyrics? Well, I mean, I did, song. I did at the time because I was obsessive. But like, my two sort of registers were like arch, arty, um, you know, too cool for everybody kind of, and that was the pose in indie rock at the time. Or it was this kind of like melodramatic, um, hard on sleeve stuff, that, but that didn't feel very honest. Whereas, you know, I think that what was arresting about this was that it felt like even now as someone who's much older, these songs felt like they had an emotional maturity that barely anything. that are also completely devoid of self pity. Yeah. Which all of the music that we just listed has in spades. Yeah. And that is something that's pretty amazing to hear. Yeah. There's none of that. Oh, poor me stuff. Even though when you listen to what she's saying, she's often describing pretty bad situations. Yeah, really shitty situations. But, I mean, that gets to sort of what the record is doing overall. Like, what, you know, she's taken this classic rock uh, icon, uh, Exile on Main Street, and she's taken it upon herself to make her version of that. 18 tracks, just like the original was. Um, But, um, I lost my train of thought. We'll have to edit this out. Um... (laughs) Well, if you if in doing reading around this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was I had all the story that gets told about how it's a track by track response to Exile on Main Street, uh, Exile on Main Street. I had always kind of assumed was just the sort of thing that like young rock stars say in interviews, yeah, and that its actual relevance to the composition project process the composition process and the music was you know tangential at best but it turns out that's not true yeah and that it was really that record exile on main street was really quite important to liz fair i mean i i'll just pull this quote from um uh jessica hopper's oral history of exile in guyville uh spin 2013 um where she talks about this record because I listened to it over and over and it became like my source of strength. My involvement with exile was like an imaginary friend, whatever Mick was saying, it was a conversation with him or I was arguing with him 
And it was kind of an amalgam of the men in my life. That's why I called it Guyville. Friends, romantic interests, these teacher types, telling me what I needed to know, what was cool or what wasn't cool. I developed a very private relationship with this record, listening to it again and again and again. And to me, that's so interesting, right? That for fair, like the state of mind or social space that she calls Guyville, which is being the only or one of the only women in a completely male atmosphere where you are the center of a kind of uh, a mode of address or something that no one else is makes you a kind of internal exile, right? Um, And I was telling Kate before we started that, you know, the title for exile on Main Street had always baffled me. The preposition never made any sense. Um, how do you get exiled on Main Street? Like, aren't you exiled from Main Street? So I did a little bit of reading about that, and there were two explanations. One is from Mick Jagger uh, that he gave in 1972. It doesn't make any sense, where he was like, yeah, you know, like, Main Street's like an ironic title because it's like, really, every city's got a Main Street, but it's like, we're all the pimps and the drug addicts and the, you know, it's the very Mick response but then also really not what main street means in this country anyway i don't know what i mean i yeah well that's was that was the source of the irony i think right skid row would be like yeah yeah so but the other one is from uh which makes way more sense and is way dumber and this is from uh keith richards from his autobiography where he says that oh when they were recording the record you know in the french riviera when they'd go out to lunch which I find it doubtful that Keith Richard made it to lunch service in any restaurant. Or left the house, or, really, at all. Right. But let's just say yeah. um, that, like, you know, on one side there was the Onassis's, and the other side there was some other, like, you know, big, rich, you know, family of industrialists, and we were just these guys who were kind of sort of in this state of exile who were there. And it's like, okay, like, I'll buy that. Right. And so like the main street is this area of rich people and you're in exile, you're sort of in a state of interior exile or whatever. But of course, like those two exiles sort of tell you a lot of what you need to know about how these two records differ. You know, one is like basically a story of, of like a kind of privilege that they felt like they were in exile, but they were like in the richest, pl- the richest place in the world having lunch or whatever as they were recording their record on like, you know. Uh, in this like gorgeous mansion that they were in, villa on the French Riviera. Whereas what Liz Fair is talking about is a more real like lived experience of being a woman uh, in a culture that is extremely male dominated and male directed where she's sort of dealing with relationships. And then she says like teacher types, you know, and that's, what's interesting about her talking about exile on main street is like, her conversations with them are the same way. It's like Mick is like the teacher type telling you what's cool and what it's like to be a rock and roller. And Liz is like figuring out what it means for her to actually be a rock and roller. Right. Um, And that I thought was also like, when I say like, I didn't think I was ready for this record, like that kind of an analysis of like subject position and gender was not something I was ready for rock and roll to like be doing to me. Um, Certainly at that time, I think that like eventually, yes, I like was more invested in that kind of thing. But like having missed the boat on this record uh, is galling because it's like 
I do now feel like I missed out on this like extremely prescient, not even prescient, but just like extremely vital uh, response to what the world is like, but also what the world of like 90s indie rock, which was very important to me, was like for this individual uh, as a woman. Um, yeah. So like that, that, those are some of the feelings that I was having while listening to it. Not to, I don't want to make this about Exile on Main Street, but mm. I was reading the Wikipedia uh, about it today Mm -hmm. um and there's a part that says that in the house where keith richards was living there were thousands of pounds of heroin moving in and out of the house every week and i stopped and stared at it and i was like that's impossible (laughs) you can't have that much heroin moving through a house with a famous like that doesn't yeah and then it it dawned on me that pounds was the oh pounds of money yeah monetary designation right so it was a smaller amount of actual like still weight. a lot of heroin still quite a bit of heroin but not as much as I thought right well and that also tells you more of what you need to know about like Liz Fair is like I was having a conversation with the Rolling Stones while listening to this like tape that was that you like you said earlier that was like she found in it was her boyfriend's tape or something versus Mick and Keith in this sort of tawdry but like real rock and roll lifestyle that's like dangerous but also like luxurious um and that's maybe something that you know you you have you can speak on this yourself i don't want to put words in your mouth but you're not a huge fan of exile on main street um i'm a bigger fan although it's not my favorite stones record um it does like it embodies all of the like if you want to look at it this way all of some of the worst archetypes of like you know white british blues musicians kind of like real comfortable with with all the stuff they're ripping off and then also like real proud of the things that they are legitimately inventing in terms of like what rock music can do um it's just like it's it's extremely interesting that she would choose this text as something to sort of bounce her ideas off of because her ideas are about sort of the rawness of being fucked over the rawness of like wanting to have agency in a, in a world where it's like not always easy. Um, or she said at, at another point in this, uh, this spin oral history that she was thinking about um, the people that populate these songs. And obviously many of them are women and many of them are women that just, get used or are framed as or portrayed as users and that she would imagine herself as that person kind of speaking back sometimes like that was sometimes Mm. the relation which is just so fascinating right that she's like living in her creative process she's like living inside these songs yeah it's just such an interesting way to think about uh that as a response but the other thing is that, like, you don't need it at all. Right. Um, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it was important to the process. But in terms of listening to the record, it's the thing that I find least interesting. Mostly because I think Exile on Main Street is a total, totally tedious album. Mm-hmm. I hate all of that. Like, I hate all of that, like, sort of, like, myth-making. They are constructing this image of the kind of elegantly wasted sort of louche casual genius that i utterly do not believe in Mm. 
And, you know, sure, I love Keith Richards, whatever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to me, the Liz Fair record in, in sensibility and in its craft is utterly different. Yeah. It's just such a fucking tight album. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that what's interesting, of course, is that I think through the years, probably what may have put me off of Exile and Guyville is the fact that it's tied to this other classic rock record that I was far more identified with for a long time because I thought it was just so cool because mm-hmm. I thought the Stones were so cool and sure they are, but I wasn't interested in Exile and Guyville, I think maybe on a kind of base level because it was attempting to rewrite this classic record of all time and how how could anybody do that? But isn't that right, that right there, the idea that when someone does something about something you love, what they're doing is rewriting it, yeah. right? Like they're, and in doing so, unwriting it and then making not exist this thing that you love, which is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. It's, I mean, it's an impulse that, I think is common, but that once you look at it is like absurd. I and mean, we see it all the time now, right? Yeah. Of course, like Star Wars backlash or whatever, sure. right? Like no one's taking your Ghostbusters <laughs> VHS away from you or deleting your childhood memories a la Men in Black. And when they make that Men in Black remake with two women in the lead roles, I'll be the first person out there protesting because that movie is garbage. podcast is over (laughs) we have different feelings about this uh but i can't wait till we get to men in black but i have seen it so i don't think we can do it on this podcast no you haven't seen it if that's your opinion of it i really have seen it i saw it in the theater i'm sure um so just uh real quick you know talk about like sort of some more thematic stuff about song content um some stylistic touchstones um you know, what I thought was interesting, one thing, I had a brief conversation. I was trying not to use all my material, but I did did talk to my wife about this, for whom this record is extremely important, and who was shocked that I had never heard this record. And, like, I think bemused, but also maybe a little angry at me. Um, <laughs> well, because she's thinking back to all the times that you did to her exactly sure, yeah. what we're talking about. And not unthinkingly. I'm sure I did. Right. Um, Where and... you were looking at your phone, and she was saying something about... Uh, Exile and Guyville yeah. and you were just like uh-huh oh totally you're totally right yeah Not. she's like oh this makes me think about like fucking Ron and I'm like uh-huh what a great song like a jerk you know and I think she was she, did you think that the song was actually called fucking run like F-U-C-K-I-N no I think I knew run. what the song title was okay. like, because I knew that much this was like this is the key to bullshitting is you have to have a little <laughs> bit of information that you can exploit um, anyway I think she was a little bit mad but not not so mad but she did talk about how uh, part of the reason why maybe we had never listened to this record together was that for her it was extremely private it was like 
not a record that she listened to at parties or would play when people came over. It was something that she had only really ever listened to, and she listened to it a lot and still listens to it, but alone by herself. Uh, and also then she wanted to start talking about White Chocolate Space Egg, which I, uh, I'm not ready to talk about because I have not gotten to that record yet. But she's, yeah. big, she's a big fan. Um, wow, and, that, is the, that is the contrarian yeah, take. Yeah, she said so. Uh, we can have her on maybe for that episode. We just want to make a Liz Fair podcast. This is but, now a Liz Fair podcast. But I, well, it is so far. I mean, we'll see what the second episode, if, it just, if we're just going to keep going with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, th- I did think that was interesting because so much of the music that I listened to in that era and, and just in the years following much of it was like yes it was a private experience i would listen to lots of music on my own driving around doing whatever i was doing but like there was also very much like i was self-conscious i was listening to music that i wanted to be an evocation of me oh absolutely um and and like i was a denizen of guyville mm-hmm. i wasn't like maybe mayor of guyville but i was maybe an ombudsman like sure. perhaps like I definitely had a seat on the city council <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I definitely like took bribes from used car dealers in Guyville. Yeah. And like made deals. Yeah. Like me and my friends were like that. And music was a competition. Yeah. And everything was a competition. But music was yeah. too. Like who had the better records or who knew about XYZ, whatever, the most male dick measuring whatever you can think of right and i guess now that i'm saying that and 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 in in this conversation like perhaps like the same thing is true of me is true of you which like would i have even recognized this if i had encountered it no i think we were too deep in guyville yeah and i think that like when i think about what i was exposing myself to you know people talk a lot um who are like in around our ages about like the sort of heroism of having to go to the record store and buy a CD that you may not even have heard before and to read obscure British periodicals and like trust the record store dudes who, who were such dicks and how, but that, that was like an amazing discovery process so much better than like turning on Spotify or whatever. But like so much of that stuff, when I look back now, it was like all the publications were like the Guyville Gazette, you know, like it was like 120 minutes wasn't giving me like an unvarnished, like, uh, you know, discovery route to, to get anything that I wanted. Like they were presenting stuff that was like adhering to a certain set of principles. And so it was like Rolling Stone or Spin or whatever. Like, sure, like there was stuff would get in. I mean, Liz Fair was a phenomenon and she, you know, had many articles written about her. But it was entirely possible for me to like just not even hear it or see it because so it was so male identified. It was so male directed. It was so much more about Steve Malkmus than it was ever going to be about Liz Fair. She was always going to be this outlier, a woman doing rock. Amazing. So like brave, you know, like when in reality, this record is like extremely uh, self-assured. It's extremely intelligent. Um, It has none of that kind of like. I'll never let you know how I'm feeling because feelings are like not in not I'm not in the business of feelings, which is like what so much indie rock was about. It was like the whole pose of that time. Mm-hmm. And I think we were like, we, we bought it, you know? And that's part of the reason why I'm that, that that's why I have complicated feelings about this record now. Yeah. But the thing is, it's like, I mean, going back to some, I guess this is going back to something I said earlier where like, like it is a record about 
feelings, but not in the way that that phrase sounds, right? Yeah, right. Because it's not about, like, won't people recognize my feelings, right? right? It's more about just a kind of description of what being in a certain situation feels like yeah right like in that way nirvana records are way more about feelings than than this record is this is about experiences experiencing those feelings and being angry or being you know um vengeful or being uh wounded or you know she did, i mean that was what was sort of stuck out to me was listening to it was like the way she talks about sort of being hurt um it doesn't feel like um vulnerable necessarily in a way that like we would all, all, all we would assume that would feel instead it feels like the narration is like it's a way of saying like I, i'm wounded that sucked and still having like your own your your own power and agency in saying that well they're written i feel like I feel like this is true. Most of them seem like they're written from a position of retrospection. Yes. And so that they're looking back on what had happened and they're far more analytical yeah. than that, right? And so first of all, the 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 writerly voice is a bit calloused at times, not callous, but like calloused over. Yeah. Um by whatever experiences right have have led up to that. Mm. So there's that too where, you know, I, that's where the toughness I think comes from yeah where that kind of analytic approach to the material is something that really does have a sort of power that not much else at that time was doing like it's it's so much more like a 70s singer songwriter move mm-hmm. than was in the orbit of and what anyone else on in that scene was doing well right and she's not i mean she's avoiding or just or she's not interested in doing stuff like dipping deeply into irony um musically she's not interested in like just being weird for weird sake mm-hmm. like talking about pavement and i was like talking about pavement the other day with somebody and talking about how like like bob nasianovich is like so annoying mm-hmm. and like he's just like weird for weird sake and like these like guys are in this band and they write these great a lot of great songs and then he comes in and like messes up a bunch of them Mm -hmm. but that's because like they thought it was funny or like that was their whole thing and if you don't get it it's like you're not playing the right game yeah whereas like she's not interested in any of that stuff like the songs are like they don't get weird for no reason there's no like dissonance there's no like spoken word shit like these are just straight ahead not straight ahead I mean that but they're like very well crafted pop songs Mm -hmm. um and that I think also was like, you know, it's a little bit different. Like it's a little bit different than other things that I think of from that era. What um, can we can we talk about our favorite songs? Yeah, sure. What are what are like what are a few of your favorites on on the record? I mean, ne- never said is the one that I got to and was like, fuck, I've heard this song a zillion times. Yeah, I, I know this song. I could sing along with this song. Mm-hmm. Um. A divorce song I think is pretty amazing. Uh, that's like a fucking that's so good. And when I asked for a separate room, it was late. And we've been driving since noon 
rest of my life just to prove I was right that it's harder to be friends and lovers and you shouldn't try to mix yeah. it's just like as a piece of storytelling yeah it's so good it's really good um and I'm not someone who ever ever pays attention to lyrics and songs yeah but it's kind of impossible not to um fucking run is really beautiful um I think Johnny Sunshine is that the one I like Still a little. You had said earlier. I think Stratford on Guy. I agree is like one of the standouts as well. Yeah, amazing. I was flying into Chicago at night, watching the lake turn the sky into blue green smoke. The sun was setting to the left of the plane, and the cabin was filled with an unearthly glow. In 2070, I was What about you? What did you what did you like? Well Stratford on Guy is definitely something that Um I just think every aspect of that song is incredible. From again the lyrics, right, that evoke this incredibly specific but sort of universally recognizable scene like so well with this sort of like novelist like almost a novelistic um I one that matches the the tone of the music so perfectly um from like the sound of the sort of chorus crashing in sort of mirroring the sound of uh you know the jet engines and and, and all of that and it's so so good um that one i really like help me marry just like as a just a great bit of pop um and yeah divorce song sure um and never said was not one that was familiar to me but it definitely set up and i really like mesmerizing just because uh i don't know that is the most that is is definitely the stonesiest yeah song on the record yeah with that you know has that little bluesy riff going on yeah um and i listened for that stuff i think the first couple of times i listened to the record i listened for that like does this sound like the Stones? And like, sure, it sounds like the Stones sometimes because mm-hmm. everybody sort of sounds like the Stones sometimes. Pardon me. Um, but like I said earlier, I was like really, I was really um, impressed is the wrong word because it makes me sound like a jerk. I was just like happy to encounter uh, this like great range of like rockers and then like more laid back kind of like, you know, just like slow burn songs. Um just like a real like wide sonic template too like mm-hmm. it wasn't just like every song is like a guitar indie rock song it mm-hmm. didn't it didn't sound quite like that and i was i was um surprised yeah i will say okay so this is a podcast about dealing with <laughs> the shame of having lied about yeah about culture there's maybe a therapeutic aspect to this i think that we're, we're hoping that you're listening because you care a little bit about what we're going through but also like that you that this is kind of interesting like it's kind of interesting to revisit these things as like an as an emotional and psychological experience so do you feel any better no i feel much worse yeah uh let me explain why um i feel better only insofar as now this record isn't part of my life and i feel like i have 
the ability to feel not not to talk about it at parties because uh, I don't know that I even would now because I feel like I have a lot to learn about it. It's more just that like I'm glad that I know it. Um, I feel bad. I think for a lot of the reasons that I've already discussed, which is like, why was I so resistant to this? I have no idea. And the only reasons I can sort of come up with are that my, you know, my self conception as somebody with open ears who was like cool with everything was kind of a lie. And I actually had like lots of walls set up that would not allow me to like get into something like this. Uh, whether or not I was actually like making an effort to avoid it, avoiding it makes it look in retrospect like I had some sort of latent sexism going on here. Like I, I like I didn't know how to deal with a woman who was singing about these things or trying to you know do her version of the Stones album or just like kind of being an indie rock at all. Um, and that was something that like I want to touch on just like very briefly is like the the women in music that I was listening to because there were plenty of them. But when I think about them, it's like Bjork, who's like doing this like art project that is like very much like it's emotional, but it's like extremely like aesthetically uh, focused. Uh, And I I should also say Bjork was already famous in Iceland. Right. And I feel like that probably (laughs) changes things. Right. That's true. Um, And she was foreign. Um, but then there's like, you know, like Mazzy Star, which is like more of that like melodramatic or like romantic kind of feelings. Um, that music is beautiful, but it's not like, it's not an adult conversation about what it's like to be in a relationship, you know, or like Beth Orton would maybe be like the closest. She's kind of like a throwback. I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of people listen to her anymore, but she was great too. But it was also this kind of like sad, beautiful, you know, singer songwriter stuff that it, you know, it, it traded in some of the same kinds of feelings and emotions that Liz Fair does, but there's something, I hate to use the word edge, but there is like an edge to Liz Fair that I find extremely gratifying and like, uh, and satisfying and, and human, uh, in a way that doesn't feel like a pose. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I feel any better either. Um, again, happy that I now know this record and i'm sure i'll be revisiting it more but for some of the same or or similar reasons i think the question that i kept asking myself was why did i think this record wasn't that important to know about mm-hmm. um did i think that people around me were lying i think that's worth saying because i think that when i think about that i must have felt something like that that like not that they were lying but just that like i was better than it um, because otherwise, what's the excuse? Yeah. Like, what was I... Yeah. I definitely think that I was thinking something like... <laughs> some, like, absurd thing. Like, I would know if I had to know about it. <laughs> right. right? Right? Like... And that doesn't make any sense, but I think that's probably something like the logic I was using to be like, I'm not listening to this. Um, and... Yeah. I... Because there are definitely other records where if it came up, I would lie about it. Of course, mm-hmm. we've established yeah, sure. this is we will both lie about our MO, but I would then make it my fucking business to go listen to that record as right. soon as possible. Right. Um, yeah, so that point. maybe it was a little bit of face saving, but I would fill in that blank, you know, real, real quick. Well, I, and I think that we've identified this sort of provocation in the title of this record. Yeah. 
Right. This Guyville thing is like the shame that we've discussed about, you know, bullshitting our way through life, not having experienced or known certain cultural objects that are agreed to be uh, extremely important by many other people. That's one level of shame. But like the deeper shame that I felt encountering this is like that the provocation was one that I like rejected and like couldn't couldn't handle um and then just became used to not handling and became probably like or- ornery or or ornery is not the right word I became kind of um you know deluded that I was correct because after so many years of denying this record well I must be right because I'm so smart and amazing but only but that and that kind of uh, we'll wrap this up in one yeah. second yeah. But that kind of rightness is the kind of rightness that, by definition, you can only ever experience in your own head. Because in order to share that with anyone else, you would have to admit that you had been bullshitting them. Well, now I've done so. Uh, and not, not only that, but I've but I also realized that that bullshitting was like, that's on me. Like, I wasn't right. I was wrong. So... So that's where uh, that's where we've gotten. All right, so we're zero for one. We both feel even worse. Yeah. Um. So this experiment is failing in all the best ways. Well, it's failing us. Um. I think it's working in that. Um. We're uncovering something awful about ourselves that we never knew, um, or maybe deep down always knew, but we're sharing it with you, the listener. And uh, exercising some of these demons. They don't feel exercised, though. I feel like they're still they're still very raw. Yeah. Um, but I love this record. Uh, can't wait to listen to it again. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks.